You're listening to the Story Centric Podcast. Welcome to the Story Centric Podcast, episode number 16. I am your host, Andrew Buckley. This is the second half of my conversation with author Finian Burnett. If you caught the first half last week, then you will already have a bit of background on Finn, but this one is a really fun part of the conversation. Not that it's not all fun, it's all fun. But this time we talk about Finn's trip to England that's coming up in 2024 uh, that they received a grant for. Uh, we're gonna talk about Terry Pratchett and different genre influences. We're gonna talk about collaborative writing a little bit. We're gonna talk about queer representation in literature and a whole bunch of other things. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I hope you learn something and take something positive away from it. And we will get right into the show. So reintroducing Finian Burnett. So tell me a little more about the grant you've got and what you plan to do with that, because that's also really cool. I mean, Canada Council of the Arts is uh, historically not, you know, just flinging money out the door <laughs> to, to creatives. So, I mean, what you have going on for that and where that came from. Um, yeah, so I wasn't even going to apply for that. And my um, editor, the editor in chief of Off Topic Publishing, who they're publishing my chat book, which is coming out um, this year, which is um, called The Price of Cookies. And it's um, Marion Lougheed from Off Topic Publishing. She is um, one of my writing group. She's part of my little Facebook writing group, and we were talking about my book that I'm working on, and she said, you should apply to one of those Canada Council for the Art grants. And I said, oh, yeah, that's for people that are of a certain level of writing. And she said, you are a certain level of writing, first of all. And second of all, it's not. It's it's they're there to support artists. And she said, you know, and third what do you have to lose by doing it? It's only just going to help you kind of solidify what you're writing about. And, you know, if you waste an hour getting together all the materials or two hours or three hours, it's not a waste because you're working on your work while you're doing that. And so I decided to do it. I had a, an account with them because when I first, I mean, I first signed up with them like five years ago just to make sure I had the access but I never even considered applying for a grant in all of that time because I did think that, you know, like that's for a different kind of writer than me. Um, so I, I selfed out for a hundred percent for sure. So I submitted um, about my art, my book that I'm working on is called Arthur Undressed. And it is a character from my novella in flash called the clothes make the man. And Arthur is a trans man who is living in a fat female body. And so he's navigating life as someone who is being told you can't have top surgery because of your weight. And he's not taking testosterone for various reasons. And his mother refuses to call him anything but his dead name. And in the meantime, um, his mother in the clothes make the man, his mother dies and dead names him on her deathbed. And so in Arthur Undressed, it's an epistolary novel, and it's all Arthur writing letters to his mother, trying to reconcile their relationship after she's dead, because he's finding himself unable to heal and to give his current partner 
um, all of himself because he yeah. still is carrying all of this baggage from his mom. So I, I gave them, I sent them a sample and I wrote up what it was about. And, um, yeah, then when I found out that I got it, I actually didn't believe it at first. And I was staring at it and I'm like, I think I'm reading this wrong. And so <laughs> I made my wife come in and, and look at it. And she said, no, yeah, you, you definitely got it. I said, well, I'll believe it when they actually send the money into my bank account. And then, you know, but so part of what I'm doing with that is going to London because Arthur moves to London at the end of the clothes make the man. And so I have to go do some research on academia in London and how it is to take the tube as a person of size and what challenges that he might find um, in a city where he very much would be using public transportation or walking, how he would find clothes for, you know, masculine clothes for someone. And so, yeah, so I'm going to go to uh, England in the summer and that should be the um, close to the end of the first draft when I finish that trip. That's going to be so exciting. What a great way to, well, even research but uh like to get funding to be able to do that kind of research is very exciting yeah i don't know that i would have been able to do it without a grant like this and it's my first time in the uk so i'm i'm even more excited about it oh, it's gonna be so exciting well as somebody who lived who grew up there uh, <laughs> it's probably exciting to go there if you've never been there <laughs> right <laughs> As somebody who has never gone back there in 20 something years, then it's less, in, less interested, to be honest. But I think you'll have a fantastic time. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, awesome. That's really cool. It's, it's exciting that you get to go and do that kind of a research project. It's exciting that it informs uh, a piece of work that you're, you're passionate about that came from a novella. And this will be a full length novel, right? That's, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's, again, you're tackling, you know, uh, it, it's hilarious that you and I are collaborating on a story because uh, we, you write such high, more, much more highbrow <laughs> literary than I do, and I write ridiculous things. So it's it's kind of nice that we get to meet in the middle when we collaborate. But it's I I, I can't help but admire um, what what you're doing. I think that we then we get back to that genre thing. Like two of my favorite authors on the literary side would be like Kazuo Ishiguro and Margaret Atwood, and yet also. I am completely in love with Terry Pratchett. So, yes. you know, like that sort of thing really appeals to me. So for us collaborating, you were really the first person I thought of. I knew that I wanted to do a collaborative work because I had a really great idea for something that I thought was just going to be such a wonderful book. And also I really needed someone with kind of a madcap, weird sense of humor to be like the other side of that equation with me. And I... I think I was completely right in um, approaching you about that. I am your person. That's what you're looking for. I can <laughs> definitely cater to that side of the world. Uh, I could never write anything that is literary. I've tried writing serious uh, and I, I, I can't. I, I can't even write straight. I mean, I, I always thought I could write a straight horror book because I really want to, I really like horror and I couldn't. It ended up becoming silly and like satirical and sarcastic. And I just don't, I don't have the ability. <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> But there's a lot of talent in writing humor, too. And there's there's a special talent in writing humor. I don't think most people could do what you do, what Terry Pratchett does. Um, even Neil Gaiman, although I think Neil Gaiman of the darker side of Terry, the Terry Pratchett relationship. It's true. Yeah, I mean, I was heavily influenced by, well, I wasn't heavily influenced by Terry. I think I talked about this on the podcast already, but like Terry Pratchett is somebody who I, my writing always gets like, you know, uh, compared to for better or for worse. And 
I, I'd never read Terry Pratchett. Like I grew up with Douglas Adams and I grew up with Neil Gaiman, especially his funnier stuff like um, Neverwhere and Nancy Boys and kind of American Gods, but American Gods was a bit darker, I always found. Terry Pratchett, I never read. I'd always heard about him. I'd always seen those novels growing up in England on the shelf with the, that crazy artwork that, you know, identifies a Discworld novel. And I'd always heard about it. And I, I never, never read it until I'd like literally f- published my first two books. And it kept getting reviews like a very Terry Pratchett-esque approach to storytelling or those kinds of comments. I was like, really? I didn't know that that's kind of what he wrote and I had no idea. And then they kept comparing my death archetype in Death, the Devil and the Goldfish to like, oh, he, he was probably, you see the author was heavily inspired by Terry Pratchett. I'm like, I've never read a Terry Pratchett <laughs> book. And then I go, so I went and picked up like the first three Discworld novels. And I'm like, oh my God, there's a, there's a death character in this, in this book. I had no idea. Like, I, and I, and no one ever, I, people probably don't even believe me now because now we're all- <laughs> similar freaking things between the books that's hilarious i had never read terry pratchett either until my brother uh, messaged me one day and said you have to read a book called good omens you just have to then this was years ago and i picked up good omens and i devoured it i think in like a day it was just so funny and after i read that and i had read Neil Gaiman before, but I had never read Terry Pratchett. So I was like, all right, I got to check out this guy too. And I did get addicted to Discworld for quite a while. I, I think I probably read through maybe 20 of them, um, 15 maybe, um, but I never read the whole series. I do have friends that are like obsessive and have read everything that they can get their hands on. I never got that far, but I, I was a fan. Yeah, I haven't got through all of his all of it either. I, it's it's an easy one for me to pick up. Like I'm like, no, I'm in between books. I'll grab a, a Terry Pratchett because there's so many of them. I, it's and I, I've stopped reading them in order. I just grab whatever, <laughs> whatever I think is most interesting. So yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it, it is interesting that we come we we come from different different sides of the writing world. It feels like, but it, it works really good. Those kind of combinations are often the best. Um, okay, let's talk about uh, queer representation in literature because, I mean, that was kind of my first introduction to you. It's the workshop that you were teaching on when I first met you. Um, so how um, how do you like to to kind of address this? I mean, this must be you must get questions around this all the time. I would assume I do because I. I kind of accidentally fell into talking about it. Um, Several years ago, the Library of Michigan asked me to give a keynote speech on queer representation in literature because I wrote queer books. Like, I'm pretty sure like that's the only reason. Um, But I went and I did it and it went really well. And I realized that there is a market for that. Um, And I, I don't mean a financial market, but I mean, there's there's a wealth of people who do want to do better as far as representation of people that are different from their lived experience in whatever way. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, you have people in your life that are queer or people of color or people of different religions or people that only eat hummus in their tube socks, like whatever their thing is, right? Like (laughs) you, you don't have everybody in your life is exactly like you. So we all want to have these well-rounded Um, groups in our novels. And so I kind of just fell into it and I proposed it for um, a couple of of places. And I was going to do one at at this big um, U.S. conference called Clexicon. 
And right when I was accepted to do that, um, COVID hit and everything was canceled that year. So instead, I just started doing it online a lot. And I ended up doing it for like when words collide, they did their online um, during COVID and several other places. And then I went to wine country, I think was the first time since COVID that I did it in person. But I've done I've done queer rep classes online for so many different places. And so, yeah, a lot of people have this in their head that I'm like the voice of, of queer, <laughs> queer rap, right? And I always try to tell people like, this is just my opinion. And there are other people that could, could not agree with me. Um, for example, I believe that anyone should be able to write queer characters. And there are people out there that think, well, only, only lesbians should write lesbian romance. And, you know, I don't feel that way. I think anyone should write whatever they, they want to write. I just want them to do it well. That's fair. And it's such a good message. I mean, it brings me back to the exact same problem. I was not allowed to write a female bisexual uh, protagonist who was this kick-ass heroine. Uh, I think it's great that that's the message that you're sharing. And I think that people probably come to you because there's very little direction toward that at the moment where it's, it's top of mind. It's absolutely hundred percent topical because it's all anyone is actually talking about is diversity and representation these days, especially when it comes to, you know, um, movies and TV and literature. It, it's, it's definitely a, a hot topic. And I, there's just not enough people you know, guiding um, everybody on this. And I'm, you know, I'm a, a, a white heterosexual. So I, you know, I, the way that I would write a queer character might not be a good way to write a queer character. So I appreciate that there are those kinds of, that you're out there and that there, you are teaching those lessons because I think it's important. I also want to address here that even though I know that you are a white cisgender heterosexual man, that I, from the moment I met you, I've always thought you had this like delightful, chaotic bisexual energy. So even though I know that you're straight, you definitely just have like queer to me. Um, so that I just wanted to put that out there. Which ever since you told me that, I've told everybody about it. And it's, <laughs> it's amazing how many people have agreed with it. <laughs> They're like, oh yeah, I, I totally get that. I'm like, really? It really took Finn to tell me this, but apparently, yes, I have a lot of bisexual energy. No it, it's quite delightful. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not in any way using it as an insult. It's actually like no, quite, I'm quite delightful. Heavily into it these days. <laughs> it's great um Um, but people have questions and i think that they need to go like for example i had someone in the last uh, just last week i think i gave a workshop on queer characters writing queer characters and one of the questions someone asked was is it okay if i have a gay male character who's the assistant to the female boss um or is that stereotypical and i said well let me ask you this is that the only gay male character and she said, no. And I said, then, no, I don't think it's stereotypical. But if you have this big cast of characters and you only have one gay male character and he happens to be like the fawning assistant to the power female boss, that can fall into a stereotypical sort of thing. But when you have like part of the cast of characters, well, we all have different jobs. We all have different things we do. And in some ways, stereotypes are there in a lot of ways because they do tend to be true sometimes like lesbians like eating hummus <laughs> you know like <laughs> so do i i love hummus i mean there's that chaotic bisexual <laughs> energy we were 
<laughs> oh my goodness. Um, it's true. Uh, I mean, Kath and I recently rewatched uh, True Blood, the TV show True Blood, uh, based on the the Charlene Harris novels. And I've tried reading those novels, and I can't stand them. No apologies to Charlene Harris. Uh, but uh, the TV show I absolutely adored, and it was Catherine's first time watching it. But there is like in the first season, there's a token gay character in it, the Lafayette character who is flamboyantly gay and uh, southern, um, and he he was he was meant to be killed off in at the end of the first season because that's what happens in the books. Spoiler alert, you know, you know, caught up in the last 20 years. Uh, but he um, but the, he was such a beloved character that the show seemed to see, you could see the switch in the show that not only did they keep him around, but they expanded on the diverse nature of all the characters. And, you know, I mean, it's ridiculous genre like vampires and werewolves and everything else. But they actually, you know, really spread it out. So it became much more of a norm as opposed to just this one character. Um, so it's it's I, I mean, that's show is now decade over a decade old right but it's kind of i think it kind of informs as to what we see now where we are existing in a very different media world where you know um diversity and sexuality are all addressed in different ways and i think you and i've talked about it before i mean i've heard a lot of old white men complaining about how all of a sudden everything is woke and everything has to be this way and i've had these conversations with um a person of color, a friend of mine, um, who is um, an author in New York, and we have this conversation back and forth all the time, and we joke inappropriately about it just to ourselves, uh, about you know how um, there's there's a the well the old trope that in the horror stories the black guy always died, like those kinds of things, and those stereotypes are slowly getting you know um, phased out, but they're getting replaced with this weird animosity against that. Okay, well now we have to have a queer character and everything, and it it's. It's such a weird world to where it, we just seem to be in this this chaotic uh, place right now. And I'm sure it'll all balance out eventually, but uh, do you experience that? Do you feel that in any way? I I do. I think it's funny how there is this pushback against wokeness when really it just means that the same old status quo people aren't getting all of the screen time anymore. Yeah. And so it's to me, I... I'd rather see a push to um, too much wokeness, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. and then have it kind of kind of balance in. I, I don't know that you can have too much wokeness. I don't think that you can have too much of being aware that, you know, people of color are marginalized or that queer people are marginalized or, you know, that women are still marginalized. And so to me, I think it's really great that we're seeing a focus so much on for example, writing grants for queer people and writing mm-hmm. grants for people of color and, um, you know, classes for women and, and that sort of thing. And a, a big focus on um, understanding trans folks. And I just think that there's so much room. I, I don't think anyone's being pushed out. I mean, you know, like I look at your success and you're a straight white man. You're not being pushed out of anything. You're still doing the same thing that you were doing. And now we're just like making a bigger stable. But I think some people like to kind of like fall on that and think, oh, well, the reason I'm not being successful is because they're giving extra privileges to all of these other people right now. And and nobody, no, I don't think it's like that at all. No, they use it as a crutch. Like basically it's just an excuse that they can throw around. And even based on our past conversation, we've talked about this. I mean, it's it, basically everything was, you know, this way for such a long time. And now everything is way over this way and these people are upset about it so but you had it forever <laughs> that way <laughs> like 
it's better that it's becoming this way that it's more balanced like you can't live it's not our fault you didn't take advantage of it i mean (laughs) if only you had more chaotic bisexual energy you could have been right there with the movement it would have been great (laughs) but i think you do need that i do i think you do need that push and i think you need that over statement of everything before it can come back to a balance point because i don't think i think if you don't have that overstatement of it it it's too close to swinging back to the old, the old way to the archaic principles so i think you have to have that you had to have it with the me too movement you had to have it with black lives matter you had to have the extremes in order to actually come back to a place of understanding because it doesn't otherwise i don't think i just don't think it gets it, it goes anywhere i don't think anything changes right like we're not going to come to a peaceful world by rich people suddenly deciding to, you know, be kind. What's going to happen is we're going to have to kill and eat the billionaires in order yes, to yes, like exactly. stabilize. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to have to get some kind of organizational structure in place to start doing that. I think that's going to be important. And once that yeah. starts happening, we'll come back to a place of understanding. Exactly. The wealth will be shared and we'll be living in this wonderful Star trek kind of world. Star <laughs> Trek utopia. Exactly. Yeah, Star <laughs> Oh my goodness. Um, okay, so the um where's I going with this? I had a point. <laughs> how does this inform how you structure stories moving forward? Because I know how it how it informs the way that I now structure stories because I never thought about I honestly never never thought about race or sexuality when I, I wrote. I've never hit upon any of it because I, I don't write romance either. So I, I've never had to address it in my writing. I, I've never had to say that this person is white or this person is black or this person is Hispanic because I've always thought, you know, I'll let the reader decide on what these people are. And it, that's that's all that's ever been in my mind about it. Now I'm looking at it from a bit of a different perspective where I'm probably doing a certain amount of, um, uh, I'm probably not doing it right, I don't think, in that sense. The way that I was writing is probably incorrect because I think it actually does need to be addressed to a point. So... I mean, how does it inform your writing moving forward? Or even what advice can you give to writers who might be struggling with the same kind of thing? I struggle with it too. I mean, I, I think it's something that we're always learning and there's some great resources out there. Like there's a, um, a website called Writing with Color that is, uh, I think it's a Tumblr resource. Um, but I think if you just Google Writing with Color, then it's a really phenomenal resource. Um and there's that. And there's, you know, all sorts of, I would say, reading personal blogs, finding sensitivity readers. Like there's so many people out there that willing to do this like emotional labor of putting out all of the resources about how to do it. And I think that it's just a matter of kind of like recognizing where we are and what our lived experience is and then deciding like what we need to learn. Like I thought, oh, well, gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this more inclusive book. So I have this character in here who's black and then this character in here who has a disability. And the thing is that I learned when I was having someone read it was that if I'm describing somebody who has a disability, then I'm making that the default is people that are able-bodied. And if I'm only describing a character when they're a person of color, if I'm only describing their race, then I'm making the default is white. And so that's like, to me, it's kind of like there's just this constant education and constantly going back to my work and checking it. And in a way, I really like that because I think that my whole career, or at least like I think since 2018, when I really just put myself into trying to learn writing as much as I could, um, I think that 
we're always learning. And I think that I like, I'll never stop taking classes. And my friend Marion always says, well, why are you going to that workshop? You could teach it. And I'm like, but I learn something new every time I take a class. So why not keep going and learning? And so I, I look at the, I guess, don't want to say challenge, but I look at the opportunity to have a more diverse range of characters in my books as yet another opportunity for me to learn how to do something better than I'm doing it now. Uh, and so that would be, I guess, my advice to anyone is just to, to to not look at it as something you have to do or that, you know, like diversity is somehow a struggle or something that, you know, you, sh- you need to see as a challenge to do, but to see as an opportunity. Yeah, I think there's some, I think it's really well, do- well, I guess there's people also learning, um, well, the same thing, the balance of it all. Right. I mean, I, I think you and I talked about it in the past. Uh, I, I read the the sequel to Hocus Pocus, which was a novelization, and it was so insanely diverse that it didn't make sense. Like they, it gone to such a degree that it, it, the story became all about that. And then it was like, wow, that is really jarring out of the overall storyline. Right. And then I, I always mention um, when I talk to uh, students about this kind of thing, like Schitt's Creek was always an example of something that I thought did it really well. Like they incorporated diversity so well into that that overall story with um, Dan Levy's character and explained it all so well that it was it was such a a natural flow into the story that it was recognizable, it was educational, and it was part of the story. Like, that all makes sense to me. It's when it's not part of the story, I think, that I'm like, well, why? Why? Like, are we, are we just throw it's the same reason like why did we throw the token black guy into all these stories in the 80s like what was the point of it um if it didn't add to the story it just felt like it was something that needed to be there right well why not just as a rule have characters who are of all different races because that's what our friend group looked like so yeah but when you're doing it to just yeah i think that one of the things i talk about a lot in my workshops is finding your why why do you want to create this character and for whatever reason if it's a queer character or a person of color or whatever thing that you want to bring into your book why are you doing it and if it's because you think it's trendy or you think it's important then you're probably not going to end up doing it well like you were talking about which is putting in this token character and then it it's it seems like it's done just as lip service whereas if you're doing it because you do believe that representation is important and that you know a lot of people deserve voices well then you're probably going to do it really well even if you end up making mistakes yeah, and it's not like it's a big stretch of the imagination or the stretch of the writing process. We ask why about characters all the time for like a million different reasons. It's just one extra reason as to as to ask why. Yeah. I mean, that's how we build character arcs. That's how we build complete characters. Like it's there's solid reasoning about asking why about a character, and you're just asking one extra step of the question. And it shouldn't be that big of a stretch, or realistically, it, it shouldn't be as big of a, uh, a prominent subject matter as it actually is, I suppose. Yeah. And I think that also comes from lived experience or like uh, the the character's journey. Like, for example, you, you brought up Schitt's Creek. Schitt's Creek comes from a place of queerness as being just natural. Mm-hmm. And that's something you and I are working on in our book is that they're not processing being queer they're not processing being trans they're not processing being poly like our characters that that have these traits they're they're not going on a journey to discover those traits they just exist like that and in our world that's a thing that exists and is great and so it doesn't have to be processed a lot of people have loved that approach because it just it's just a normal thing right and like the more you read these sort of things it's a normal thing um 
but then I also like the journey as well as, and you know, with Arthur undressed, I'm, I'm writing about the transphobia he experiences and the fat phobia he experiences. Um, and so I think that's important too. So you kind of just have to find the balance of how important those stories are and then who, who's going to tell them. I, I don't know that you would write a story that was a trans narrative of somebody coming to terms with their transness because you have never lived that. But you might write a trans character who exists as a trans character and is this cool person. And that's like one thing among all of their other attributes. Yeah, you're right. It is about the balance. I mean, that kind of what Schitt's Creek did and what we're trying to do with ours is is um, is idyllic in a lot of ways. Like it's kind of how we would probably like to see see society play. Uh, but with what you're writing with um, with Arthur is 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 something different, where it is setting a stronger message that hopefully people can relate to, you know, in their own journey or even in you know people that they know, and help them understand things better. Uh, and it's all it's the lifelong learning piece, I suppose. I mean, we're constantly trying to learn and accept and communicate more effectively, so that we can keep learning and keep accepting, and keep kind of running around that same cycle. Yeah. And no matter what you do, you're going to have somebody who's going to be upset about you. Either you write about queerness like it's normal and people are going to say, you know, you're dismissing the queer marginalization or you write about queer marginalization as I'm doing. And people are going to say, well, why can't you write about queer joy and just normalize this? So, you know. Why are your queer characters not happier? Like, honestly. <laughs> why can they not be so much more joyful? It's ridiculous. <laughs> That's actually absolutely horrible. Uh, that's you know trying to tell ask, tell people what why are you so depressed? Right. Why? It's man, we live in a weird world. <laughs> that is the truth. But it's very exciting. Uh, okay, we are at the top of the hour. So thank you so much, Finn. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat. You're one of my favorite people in the world. I feel the exact same about you. And I I think we'll need to do another podcast when we get closer to our book being done. And we oh, yeah. should we can have a, ooh, we can't wait to tell you all the secrets about our book sort of thing. We should definitely do that. And we'll be able to talk very um, candidly and informatively about how difficult it is to write with uh, different pronouns. <laughs> <laughs> I've never struggled more with trying to figure out they, them, and, <laughs> and uh, the, the weird grammatical story, uh, uh, grammatical issues that it brings up. And, and we should state for the record that I am they, them, and use they, them pronouns in my life. And I am struggling with the arrangement of sentences to ensure that it gets across who is talking to whom and at what point. Yeah, it is something else entirely. Um, but yes, we definitely should do a follow-up to this uh, when we get close to that, for sure. I would love it. Thank you so much for having me. And that is the show, folks. I hope you enjoyed this two-parter with Finian Burnett. I put Finn's website information in the description for this episode, so be sure to check that out. Next week, we are back with a brand new guest. C.C. Humphreys, author, actor, will be joining us for two weeks to talk about his career, acting, writing, and everything that goes along with that. He's a pleasure to talk to, and he has a lovely British accent, so I'm sure everybody will love that. I have been your host, Andrew Buckley, and I will see you next Tuesday.